This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgach, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Welcome to part one of our episode on the efficacy of TMS and DBS for OCD. That is a lot of acronyms, and we'll find out more about what they are in this episode. Joining us today, we have Dr. Luca Cocky and Dr. Philip Mosley from Queensland. Luca completed his PhD in neuroscience back in 2007. In 2016, after several years of training at leading research institutions in Switzerland and Australia, he was invited to join the QIMR Berghofer and is currently a group leader there, as well as an honorary associate professor at the University of Queensland. In his role with his team, Luca has been working on ways of improving TMS for the use of OCD treatment. Our second guest for today, Dr. Philip Mosley, is a psychiatrist and clinician scientist with expertise in delineating the neural underpinnings of psychiatric and cognitive symptoms arising from focused electrical stimulation. Following a two-year neuropsychiatry fellowship, he was embedded as the neuropsychiatrist at one of the largest deep brain stimulation centres worldwide which is St. Andrew's Hospital in Brisbane. Working in both research and private practice, Philip carries a passion in focusing on neurodegenerative disease, movement disorders, and head injury, whilst he also provides a consultation liaison psychiatry service to the neurology, medical, and surgical wards at St. Andrew's War Memorial Hospital in Brisbane. Most recently, he was awarded funding to further his research into DBS for treatment-resistant OCD. In part one of today's episode, Luca and Philip talk to us about the neuroscience of OCD, what treatment-resistant OCD means, and why it sometimes occurs. Luca also introduces us to the exciting possibilities of TMS for OCD. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Breaking the Rules podcast. Today we are chatting with Luca Cocky and Philip Mosley, all about TMS and DBS for OCD. That is a lot of acronyms, but they are going to enlighten us and share their research knowledge about how we can try different methods to improve brain functioning when it comes to treatment-resistant OCD. Thank you both so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Why do you both just tell us a little bit about yourselves so we can um, get to know you a little bit better. Perhaps, Phil, let's start with you. Oh, okay. I was going to say Luca because he's more important. <laughs> than, um, <laughs> so well, I suppose you can, we can build up to Luca. So I'm Phil Mosley. I'm a psychiatrist and I'd like to be called a neuroscientist one day. And I work half-time in a hospital as a host, general hospital psychiatrist in a, in a medical and surgical hospital. And I spent half my week doing neuroscience research with Dr. Cocky. I'm English originally, but I've lived in Australia for almost 15 years. And I am interested in helping people with OCD. How did you come to be interested in OCD specifically? I've always been very interested in neuroscience and how the brain works. And 
I found myself working for the past decade in a team that does deep brain stimulation for movement disorders, primarily Parkinson's disease. We'll talk about what deep brain stimulation is, I'm sure, down the track. And the centre that I work at, I'm the psychiatrist in the team and there's a neurologist and a neurosurgeon in our team as well. And we're one of the biggest centres in the world for this therapy. And we've developed quite some knowledge about how the treatment works. And we ended up running a trial of deep brain stimulation for treatment refractory OCD. And that's where my interest in the condition came from because I ended up meeting all these people with lifelong histories of uh, shocking illness that had um, not responded to a whole host of conventional medication and psychological therapies. So I thought these people are generally pretty cool people who have got a pretty crappy illness that's ruining their life. And uh, let's try and see what we can do to improve their quality of life a bit. Mm. We hear that a lot, actually, that people find themselves or stumble upon OCD for a whole host of reasons and then find themselves really engaged in the work, that there's something that is fascinating or something about the people who have OCD that's just that's really interesting that keeps people wanting to work with them. Your story sounds so familiar. What about you, Luca? Similar to Phil, I mean, I'm, I'm Swiss. I did my study in Switzerland and then moved here again 15 years ago around in Melbourne. I did my, what they call postdoctoral training at the Melbourne Neuropsychiatry Centre. Then moved to Queensland at the Queensland Brain Institute and then moved to QMR here in Brisbane. So my interest in psychiatry is similar uh, to feel, you know, I've always been kind of interested in brain function and how this interface with uh, our mind or lead what we think. So my interest in OCD maybe stem from a more personal reason, like I have a family member that have suffered from OCD or are suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder. So that's one aspect. And the second aspect is uh, we work, our laboratory work across a number of disorders. But I think OCD has a very, at least the symptoms, the core symptoms of OCD, obsession and compulsion, map quite neatly into specific pathway in the brain that are also transagnostic and linked to disorder like addiction and other disorders like Tourette's syndromes and so on. So uh, from a neuroscience perspective, they are really interesting disorder because uh, contrary to other pathologies like schizophrenia like that, where the mapping of circuits that are linked to the symptoms is a little bit more complicated or less neat. With OCD, we can kind of track, we have better tracking of the potential pattern of activity or wiring or miswiring of the brain that could lead to these symptoms. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those pathways? Because I think Tori and I get asked a lot by our clients and as well as um, clinicians about the implicated pathways. Would you mind telling us a little bit about what they are? Generally speaking, they basically involve uh, some structure in the brain that are deep in the brain, in particular structure that is called the striatum, and then a region in the front of our brain, like the frontal cortex. And then, of course, this structure are highly interconnected with uh, other key structure, like, for example, the amygdala that is involved in this emotional process and emotional regulations. So what it seems to happen is that at least the, the symptoms, the core symptoms of obsessivity and compulsivity seems to link to different kind of hyper and hypoactivation in these circuits. And there are also circuits that are, as I said, involving in addiction 
and in order a type of, um, if you want, uh, behavioral dysfunction that overlap with the phenomenology of OCD. Is there a sense of, of why this occurs? We understand there's a, there's a pretty good familial link. Yeah, there is. A, so the GWAS study, this big genetic study, have indicated some kind of genes that are involved in the disorder. So there is some genetic impact, of course, twin study and family relative study also suggests that there is some kind of genetics overlap. But of course, and then Phil can probably talk better on that because I'm not a psychiatrist, but there is, of course, cognitive structure or behavior or way of thinking that parents, maybe with OCD, can transmit to children. And then you kind of find this recurrent rigidity. There is some discussion, uh, the DSM-5 now, classify OCD as distinct from anxiety disorder, if I'm not incorrect. So there is a debate, is an anxiety disorder, is not an anxiety disorder. So I think the cause in itself are still a debate, but it's pretty obvious that there is, as usual for mental illness, that there is a genetic component, there is a neurophysiological component, and there is a behavioral component. Yeah, and I think if you look at the natural history of OCD, in most people, it's an illness that has its onset in childhood and classically becomes more fulminant in adolescence and early adulthood, which is very consistent with uh, neurodevelopmental illness. And it's very closely associated with all of these other neurodevelopmental conditions, such as ADHD, Tourette's, ASD. And so in my mind, it's sort of brain maturation and synaptic pruning in a similar way to other neurodevelopmental issues. That's interesting of synaptic pruning, really. I find that interesting about the idea about the childhood onset. I mean, being a child and adolescent psychologist myself, I mean, you know, most of the young people I, I see, you know, have had really early onset. But that's very interesting to think about that. You know, in general terms, the brain is undergoing this enormous remodeling in adolescence and young adulthood. And, you know, if you talk to people with OCD, classically, that's when their disorder really takes off. You know, they may have been a checker, a counter since childhood or had some eating concerns, but it's really in that adolescent phase where things go off the rails. No, I think that makes sense to a degree based on in terms of typically from what I've seen, it, it's almost like there's two age clusters, like there's the late childhood prepubescent cluster where it can really kind of set off. And then you've got the late teen, young adult cluster as well, where it can really set off as well. And I think if you think about what's happening developmentally, there's probably two times in life where there is a lot of change happening. I mean, you probably could even think about psychiatrists. You can formulate things a million different ways and they're all got some level of meaning. You could probably, you know, phrase that in sort of developmental and personality stages as well and talk about why that has an impact on the expression of the illness. Interesting. I think we're both really curious, particularly given your interest in and research into TMS. We're really interested to hear you talk about that. But also, particularly, I know we're curious about why some people are treatment resistant. I mean, I think that's because, Phil, your work with DBS, I mean, the question is the same to you too. Why is it that traditional interventions or first-line interventions don't seem to have an effect for some people? The question of treatment resistance is a difficult one. No? It's probably a mix between the biological loading of the insults, but also probably a mix of where you get stuck with your obsession and compulsion. There is studies suggesting certain type of uh, obsession 
more resistant. For example, if you have obsession of intrusive thoughts about taboo things, are less able to disclose them, less able to deal with them. And of course, the therapy become more difficult and so on and so forth. But Phil, it's probably more equipped to talk about that. In terms of our work, I think the first thing that we try to do, Phil, myself and other people here at QMR, is try first to understand what are the circuits that have an activity that doesn't seem to be what you can say normal or what change in brain activity seems to link to the symptoms. Then once this job is done, and it's not done yet, but once you have an understanding of the circuits that are implicated, the second question is, can we do something to change the activity of these circuits? So, of course, you can go a different way. You can go with psychotherapy. You can go with uh, medication. You can go with brain stimulation. The interest in brain stimulation is, of course, that uh, it's uh, direct, is uh, targeted, it can be personalized, can be specific, and uh, you intervene directly on the neural substrate. So if you have a person that cannot deal with psychotherapy because the nature of the obsession or the compulsion is too severe, they don't want to disclose it, it's too distressful or like that, you have to find a way to bring the system to a level where the symptoms are sufficiently mild so that all the kind of intervention can work together and can be applied to the specific. So the appeal of brain stimulation is it does allow to, if you want, bypass the siege or the barriers of the mind, then go directly on the brain, change the brain, reducing a little bit all this defense or all this complexity that goes with the construction that people build on top of this sensation or this neural pattern of activity, and then you can start working on that. So that's a little bit the aim, and we can discuss exactly, you can go in a non-invasive way or an invasive way, but I think this is a little bit my thinking surrounding the, this therapy. So again, it's not a cure. It's not something that's going to alone solve the problem, but I think it's a powerful tool, potentially, if we can get it right. It's a powerful tool to really make a significant change in the quality of life for individual and allow them to take advantage of other form of therapy. It's really refreshing to hear you describe it that way because, and also reassuring, oddly, <laughs> because that's often how I've described it to some of my clients clinically. I've had clients that have had DBS and knowing them before and after, it's just remarkable in terms of how much the intensity of the distress that they've been feeling has reduced and they still experience their obsessions and compulsions, but the reduction in the in the intensity of the distress they're feeling actually helps them do the therapy. So I often describe it to clients that are interested. I say, it's almost like my understanding. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a medical professional, but like it almost kind of does what the medicine fails to do in terms of reducing the distress and dialing the volume down of OCD. And it allows you to do the work that you want to do, which is your therapy. And the combination of both of those things has shown remarkable change for a lot of people who have struggled to find the right combination of medicine or who have tried every single combination under the sun or, you know, have been trying therapy for years and years, inpatient programs, community programs, all that sort of stuff. So it's reassuring to hear you also describe it that way because that's been my clinical experience in terms of seeing the difference pre and post. 
we were talking about treatment resistance and why some people are treatment refractory in OCD. It's not a problem that's unique to OCD, of course, and treatments, many treatments in psychiatry are ineffective for a substantial cohort of people across conditions, including depression and psychosis. So we've got a lot of work to do to improve therapies. But specific to OCD, I think just to add to what Luca was saying and what you've said, that's exactly what we see in our cohort of people who were included in our trial of DBS. They had many goes at expert psychotherapy with very experienced clinicians who have long histories of treating successfully treating people with OCD, but the work of the therapy was too distressing for them. Uh, they were not able to either tolerate exposure or repeated exposure, even though it was very distressing, did not lead to habituation of the anxiety and the distress associated with the obsessive thoughts. So there's something about these individuals, they, they have a particularly nasty dose of of OCD and therapies just bounce off, just doesn't seem to stick. And then there's a smaller cohort of people with, with OCD that perhaps have more of the OCPD, more of a kind of what we used to call an anancastic personality style, very rigid individuals who, and often their OCD is somewhat more egosyntonic than dystonic. So their motivation to change is more limited. And then there are a number of people with OCD who have more limited insight into the, I don't want to say abnormal because that's a bit judgmental, but they're not really that good at picking what their obsessional thoughts are as compared to other people with OCD. And they're more difficult to work with because it's more difficult to actually challenge them and get them to engage in exposure, not because it's too distressing, but because they can't, for some reason, they're, they're not quite as good at, at isolating those specific thoughts and behaviors. We start with TMS, then we'll go to DBS. How does TMS work? So TMS is basically inducing a magnetic field. You, know? you put it on the skull, there is this coil that where there's electricity that passed into this coil, generate this magnetic field. And uh, by changing this magnetic field, you are able to, via eddy current correction, eddy currents, you are able to generate small current in the neurons that are just below the coil. You know? And by inducing this current, you are able to depolarize so make neurons to get active, if you want. So you're basically able to generate activity in some neurons. Depending, activate these neurons, you can induce phenomenon called like plasticity. So you can make those masses of neurons more excitable or less excitable. And of course, then you can think at how, depending where you apply the stimulation, which system you want to do, if you want to make it more excitable or less excitable. So right now, in terms of OCD, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, has been very successful in depression. Is TGA and Medicare-related treatment for refractory depression. Our group is trialing new protocols for obsessive-compulsive disorder. Right now, there is only one particular protocol that is approved by the TGA, the evidence for that protocol to work is not as strong as uh, for depression, so we need more research. As I said, our team is doing part of that research. We have some promising protocol that seems to alleviate the symptoms, but again, there's really a need to do more clinical trials, more fundamental research to try to, again, reach a high level of evidence. I must say, one of the unfair judgment of uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, especially this comfort depression, is that it is approved to treat 
symptoms of people that already failed other type of intervention. And of course, we achieve with the standard for maybe a 40% of people get significantly better. So they have a meaningful clinical reduction in symptoms. And with the most personalized way that are, we use neuroimaging, we use uh, the mapping of this wiring of the brain, we can push it and achieve around 60, 70, or even 80% in, in reduction. So I think it's quite remarkable that in those individuals, we can achieve that level of remission. And of course, some people say, well, but you, not everyone go better, but with psychotherapy and medication, not everyone go better. So as I said, I think it's not a cure. We don't advocate this as a cure, but it's another tool that needs to work in synergy with the other type of therapy to allow individuals to reach a meaningful response. How accessible is TMS? Again, with Medicare, now for depression, I would say it's relatively accessible. There is many providers, at least in the capital city, Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane, many providers, several providers that offer TMS. There is a new form of TMS, again, that are better in terms of more personalized, more tailored to the individual. We have a non-for-profit clinic called the Queensland Neurostimulation Center that offer this kind of personalized intervention. And we are trying to facilitate the rollout of this next generation of intervention to other clinic around Australia. But overall, even the standard form of TMS that is effective is now quite available. And with the Medicare rebate, people can access that. For OCD, is a completely different story in the sense that there is as I mentioned, only one type of treatment that is linked to one type of machine that has been approved. That's a little bit more complex to access to that. And there is still more research and more evidence that need to be created to justify and to roll out into the clinic this kind of intervention. With Phil, Phil is going to talk about a deep brain stimulation, the problem of the fact that it's invasive and so on and so forth. So we are trying to develop the next generation of brain stimulation intervention using new technology like focus ultrasound technology, where you can achieve similar results, or we hope to test similar results with DBS, but without the surgical intervention. Because one of the problems of TMS is that it can only access the superficial part of the brain, so it cannot penetrate to the really deep part that are involved in supporting OCD. This is a limitation that is bypassed by this new technology like ultrasound stimulation. That sounds really cool because I think a lot of people do get freaked out by the fact that they have to be awake during surgery while essentially your brain's being cut open but your skull's being removed and all the rest of it. Is that how it works? Well, Phil can talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you want to enlighten us? We, I don't think we remove the scalp anymore, but uh, no, okay, cool. Yeah, Phil, Phil is best place to talk about. Yeah, all fair enough. Please enlighten us. <laughs> no, you don't have to be awake when they don't remove your skull. <laughs> <laughs> I've got like this medieval image of like what, yeah. what this yeah, 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 like, looks um, like. like um, what's that? Trapanning? Is it called to get the evil spirits out? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, where they were drilling holes in people's heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, <laughs> we've moved slightly further forward in medicine 
for the last couple of hundred years, only slightly, but um, <laughs> we no longer think people with mental illness are possessed by demons. <laughs> That's fallen out of favour, mm-hmm. thankfully. So DBS, yeah, I'll talk about DBS, so different stimulation. So that is a neurosurgical procedure. It's been out actually for almost a century, and people were using electrical stimulation to change brain activity in the 1920s and 30s. And the problem was that they didn't have a battery to attach the leads to deliver continuous stimulation. And they used to use electrical stimulation in the treatment of movement disorders like Parkinson's disease to work out what bits of the brain were doing, whether they're important or not, before they performed ablative neurosurgery, where they would burn away bits of the brain to treat things like tremor in Parkinson's disease. And an operation called a pallidotomy or thalamotomies were mainstream treatments for movement disorders until the development of a drug called levodopa which was an absolute breakthrough in the treatment of Parkinson's disease. And then neurosurgery fell out of favor for many years, and no one was really doing that much of it. But the problem with, I'm going way off topic here, but I'm giving a bit of a history. No, no, it's good. If you're listening and this is boring, just fast forward. (laughs) (laughs) The problem with Parkinson's disease is the drug is fantastic at first, but in many people with Parkinson's disease, they become sensitized to the drug. It stops working or causes significant problems. And people began to look again at, neurosurgery and electrical stimulation. And in the 90s, but we had the technology now to implant people with batteries, like or sometimes known as brain pacemakers or implantable pulse generators that could deliver continuous electrical stimulation from implanted electrodes. And that was where deep brain stimulation came from. And the first operation, the first use of DBS in the modern era for Parkinson's disease was described in the 1990s. And the pioneer of that was a guy called Benabid. And he was working in France at the time. And so DBS really took off for the treatment of movement disorders. And now over 150,000 people have had deep brain stimulation for things like Parkinson's disease worldwide. It's a very it's a mainstream therapy for people with neurological conditions. In the surgery, two very small, very fine electrodes are introduced into the deep brain structures. And there's one on each side of the brain because the brain's symmetrical. It's got two hemispheres. Usually we identify the target for those electrodes on a brain scan that's done very close to the operation in our center the day before the procedure. And we use a computer program to identify the best way to get those electrodes into the target, avoiding important structures in the brain like blood vessels and the like. And then in the operation itself, uh, the patient is put to sleep and a metal frame is attached to the person's head. That's called a stereotactic frame. And that uses clever mathematics to use that trajectory that's calculated by the computer to help the neurosurgeon introduce those electrodes in along a trajectory into that brain target. In the operation, a small incision is made in the patient's scalp and the top of their scalp is peeled back in two very small holes drilled in the patient's skull. The person's asleep while that's happening. The electrodes are introduced initially. A recording electrode is usually introduced and we measure brain signals from the target. That's another way of confirming that we're in the right place. And then those recording electrodes are removed and the stimulating electrode is placed in. And then the patient is briefly roused from anesthesia to test the stimulation. That's a third way of making sure the electrodes are in the right spot. So we've got the brain imaging, we've got the recordings, and then we've got the test stimulation. The patient's put back to sleep and everything's closed up and the battery's implanted. And they wake up and then we do another brain scan to confirm that the leads are where we want them to be. And Following the procedure, the devices are turned on, and that delivers a very small focus field of electricity, three to five millimeters in diameter, 
at the tip of the electrode where it's implanted in the brain structure. And over time, those settings are gradually increased to deliver a slightly larger stimulation field. And that changes the pattern of brain activity in that region of the brain. But because the brain's a very connected organ, it's able to change widespread brain activity in circuits that pass through or are connected to that implantation site. And that is a available condition in Australia for the treatment of movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease, Tourette's syndrome, essential tremor and dystonia. And a couple of centres in Australia, including us, have used it for the treatment of OCD. Thanks for joining us for part one of our chat. Join us next episode as we conclude the conversation. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. rules. <laughs>